Amen. Hey, you can have a seat. Our kids, you can slide out to Redemption Kids, our volunteers. Um, just follow them in the orange aprons, and they will get you squared away. If, if you're new and you've got a child, just follow our volunteers, and uh, they'll get you checked in with Redemption Kids. For the rest of you, go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word, or turn your Bible on, or open up the app, or we've got some Bibles um, out as you walk in back here, and uh, turn to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. My name is John Chastain, and uh, I serve as one of the pastors here, and it is my honor uh, to bring God's Word to you to today. As Pastor Reddy mentioned, over the next two weeks, we're going to be wrapping up this series called 39, Treasuring the Old Testament. I'm preaching this Sunday and next. Um, and, and my attempt is to cover the entire Old Testament. And so before you freak out, we're not covering every single verse, but I want to explain why I believe this is important. And there's two main reasons. One, first of all, it flows from a personal pain point with myself. Many of you know this. I, uh, I grew up a pastor's kid. And so in the church um, my whole life, I memorized a ton of Bible verses. I knew many of the stories of the Bible, but I did not know the story. I knew a bunch of facts. I knew a bunch of laws and commands, but I lacked the integration for how all of that fit together. And that may be you today. I don't know where you are in terms of understanding God's word, in particular, the Old Testament. But, but the Bible isn't just a series of, of laws or commands or stories. It's a story that I want to share with you today. But second, it flows from a passion of mine to see people read the Bible the way Jesus and the early church seemed to approach the Bible. Now, the very beginning of the this, this series in June, Pastor Reddy laid a great framework for how, how are we to think about the Old Testament, in particular, the relationship to the New Testament. But I don't want us to approach the Bible. And as we look at the early church and Jesus, it wasn't just, it wasn't a rule book for them. And they weren't just... You know, we, we've called this series 39. The temptation could be to think, well, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, and they have maybe very little to do anything with each other. Now, I think there's value in studying a theology of a particular book, but what I want to make sure that we get at the end of the summer is how they all integrate together. And here's why we can do that. The Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God. So in one very real sense, there is one author from beginning to end that is bringing a great cohesiveness and unity to the entire story of Scripture. All the stories that I knew as a kid have to be connected in some way to the story from Genesis to Revelation, really that story of redemption of what God is doing to redeem the world in Jesus Christ. And here's my contention. You're sitting here today and you're trying to figure out, am I going to listen to Pastor John today? 
here's my reasons why I think you should pay attention. It's my contention that for, for you to rightly understand any part of the Bible rightly, you've got to know the story of the Scriptures. You've got to know where that particular passage you're reading fits in that story. You've got to know where you fit in that story. And you've got to figure out how it contributes to that larger story. Only then can we answer the question, what am I supposed to do? And most of us, if we're honest, we're, we come to the scriptures often saying, I mean, what am I supposed to do? What's the application? But if you miss the story and where you are in the story, you're going to get the wrong application on what you're supposed to do. And so my goal is a similar goal. Vaughn Roberts has written a book called God's Big Picture. And he shares in that at the beginning he, he unpacks his goal, and it's similar to what I'm attempting today. He says, um, special forces soldiers, when they parachute in to a new territory, do you know what they're trained to do first when they land? They pause, and they get their bearings. And that's what I want to help us to do. My goal is that you could parachute in to any place in the Bible and be able to pause and get your bearings what is the story? Where is this at in the story? Where am I in the story? And what implications does that have on how I read the story? You guys with me? So let's go pair, let's get trained as special forces Bible students to parachute in to various places of the Bible. So let's start, start where all stories start, the beginning. Turn with me to Genesis 1, verse 1. And let me just give you a few caveats here. My goal is not to cover every verse in Genesis 1 through 3 today. If that is your expectation, you're going to be disappointed. What I am going to cover is the general storyline that will help us understand what God is doing throughout all of Scripture. And so when we come to Genesis 1 and 2, what we see here is Act 1 and the drama of Scripture and the story of the Bible. And what we see is we, we see it's painting a picture of God's original perfect creation and life how it was meant to be. And what I want to do is unpack three truths from, from these two chapters in, act, in, in, the, in the first act here that are essential for knowing the whole story. And the first one is this. God is the author and king of creation. God is the author and king of creation. Look here, Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why don't you just pause for a second. What are the first three words of the Bible? In the beginning. How is Genesis presenting this book? It's presenting it like a story. It's already presupposing when you read in the beginning that there's What? that there's an end to the story. In fact, the bookends of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 21 and 22, those form the bookends of the story. They correspond to Act 1 and Act 6 in this drama that I'm going to unpack for you. And you, you keep hearing me talk about Act. Well, 
One of the influential writers that's been helpful for me in thinking about this is a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, who's written on the role of story in understanding the Bible. And some other guys, um, Craig Bartholomew, Michael Goheen, have built on that work, and they've proposed that in the Bible there is a six-act drama. Pretend you're going to watch a drama, and there's different acts. Act one is creation. You watch it, Genesis 1 and 2, the curtain closes. Act two is the fall. You watch what unpacks there in that story. The curtain closes. Act three is Israel, the rest of the Old Testament. I'm going to cover that next week. The curtain opens, and you see all the way from Israel's history leading up to the silent years before Christ, and the curtain closes. Act four is Jesus. This is the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Curtain opens. We see Jesus step onto the stage. The kingdom of God has come. The curtain closes. Act five is the church. This is where you and I fit into the story. Curtain opens. We see this in Acts, the early church start. We see all the letters in the New Testament correspond to the church. We still have a task as the church to finish the mission of God. And eventually that curtain is going to come to a close And then we're going to go to the final act, Act 6, which is new creation. So the bookends of the Bible go from creation to new creation. And I would argue everything in between has to be read in light of the bookends. Now, I'm not spending time in Revelation 21 and 22 today, but I would encourage you to go meditate and spend some time there because it's going to help give you some perspective as you think about what is in between. So in the beginning, we see this word in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. We're not given an argument for the existence of God. In fact, his existence is assumed. We're just told that in the beginning, he was there. Now here's the deal. As we continue reading through the Bible, here's what we're going to find out. We're going to find out that God alone is eternal. He's not a created being, and there has never been a time when God did not exist. In the beginning, God. What did he do? God created the heavens and the earth. And we see this played out in the rest of this chapter. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. We see all of the days of creation. Now let me just give you a quick sidebar. Our concern today is not whether God completed the job in six literal 24-hour days or over a larger, longer period of time. Our main concern is this. It's the fact that God is the creator of all things. Why is that important? I'll come back to that in just a second. But I want you to see a pattern here. As we look at creation, we see God creates. He speaks and he creates. He speaks and he creates. But we also see this other pattern. At the very end of every day, look, for instance, at chapter 1, verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Go on down with me. Verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. 
Going down with me, verse 13. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. This continues on. Verse 19, there was evening, there was morning the fourth day. Go on down to uh, verse 23. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And then in verse 31, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. We see this pattern of God creating, and then evening, morning, and we have every day of the week, one through six. The other pattern that we see throughout this is is after God creates, we see this phrase, and God saw that it was good. Look at uh, verse four, and God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, at the very bottom, it says, uh, the earth um, brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, he's talking about um, the light on the earth to rule the day and over the night to separate the light from darkness and God saw that it was was good. Verse 21, after uh, the living and, and the sea creatures, it says, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, after creating other living creatures, God saw that it was good. And then we saw the climax in verse 31. God saw everything that he had made. Indeed, behold, it was very good. By virtue of being the creator of all things, he is Lord of all. So here's the deal. In creation, God established his kingdom and rightful rule over everything. And you know what our proper response is? We're to acknowledge and to worship. In Revelation, this is what Revelation 4.11 says. I got it here on the screen. Worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. If you don't get this point, you're gonna mess up the rest of the story. God is the rightful king over all. He established his kingdom and it is a good kingdom. Let me say that again. It is a good kingdom. Thank you for the amen up there ready. The second truth I want us to see here, humans are the climax of creation. Go to verse 26 in chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has brought has the breath of life. I've given every, every green plant for food and it was so. 
Day six, we see the climax of creation with humans in the image of God. No other part of creation is described this way. Not even the animals. What's going on here? And and here's the point. We don't initiate this. God initiates this. He initiated creating us in a particular kind of way. Humans alone are made in his image, and we share this special relationship with God that the rest of creation doesn't, and it has a vertical and a horizontal component. Now, I, I could preach a whole sermon on the image of God. I'm not today. So there's a lot of questions you may have. Those will be where we'll dig in later. Vertically, we're made to be in relationship with and worship God. We have the capacity to worship God in a way that no other creation has. Second, horizontally, male and female function as like king and queen of creation underneath God exercising rule over their dominion. Do you see that? God is king, but humans are king and queen underneath God, and he's given us a level of dominion over the earth. So Adam and Eve were created not only to enjoy the kingdom of God, but also to help establish that rule on the earth. And as they were fruitful and multiplied, what would happen to this kingdom? As they are fruitful and as they multiply, Adam and Eve are multiplying worshipers to the ends of the earth so that this whole earth is full of worshipers living under the kingdom of God and making much of him. This world is not ultimately about you. It is about God. The third truth I want us to see. Rest is the goal of creation. Go to chapter 2. And for some of you, maybe this is surprising. And just so you know, the, the chapter divisions here are not like inspired by God. They were later added in. So Kind of the, the way the chapter falls, it's as if what's happening, like the, the climax was humans. But in ra- reality, I mean, it is, that's the climax of creation, but everything's been building towards day seven. In day seven, we see this, chapter two, verses one and three. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Hear this. All the other six days find their ultimate significance on the seventh day. I'm going to unpack what I mean by that. This is evident for because of the repeated emphasis on the number seven on day seven. The seventh day is mentioned three times. If we were to peer in to the Hebrew right here, we would see that there are 35 total words, a multiple of seven. We would see that there are three, the three middle phrases have seven words each in it and each have the word seventh in it. I'm just giving you some nuggets here. The point being, what the author's highlighting for us is that this was a day of completion. It's got the, the perfect number seven and it's repeated multiple times. 
It's also distinguished from the other six days because it is called blessed and holy. Now let me ask you a question. What does it mean that God rested on the seventh day? Does God need to rest? Now think about this. Since the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, who Isaiah says does not faint or grow weary, his resting was not to remedy exhaustion after a towering work week. Similarly, later text suggests that God has been continuing to work since creation. Go look at John 5.17. Especially his work of providence and upholding the entire universe. Therefore, God's resting does not refer to inactivity, but to his ceasing from his works of creation accomplished in the previous six days. As Von Roberts notes, when a job has been done perfectly, there's nothing more to do. Additionally, Many Old Testament scholars see a parallel here between a description of the Garden of Eden and temples and sanctuaries in the ancient Near East. Why do I mention this? What are temples for? I mean, we've gone to some temples when we traveled um, to South Asia, right? And that what what's what's like? That's where a deity. Would like his presence would be known for where a deity would rest in. And so, what seems to be going on here is that the garden, in a sense, is being described like a temple. And if temples is where deities take up their rest, the garden is God's temple garden sanctuary. And he's now, as he rests on the seventh day, taking up his residence there to rest and dwell and reign over his creation. Here's the point. The world is not just a dwelling place for people, but also a dwelling place for God. But did you notice something missing here? Go look back at verses one through three. You remember the pattern I mentioned of creation? What's missing? And there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. You tell me, why is it missing? I don't think it was an accidental omission. I believe it was pretty intentional. Here's the point. The seventh day rest here with no evening or morning is presented as an unending and ongoing day throughout the rest of human history. God creates. Now let me, let me ask you another question. Where are humans on day seven? You see them in the text anywhere. We're not mentioned anywhere. By default, humans that were created on day six step into the rest of God. 
the very rest that he created them to live in and enjoy with him for the rest of eternity. We're not commanded to sanctify the seventh day here. As image bearers, N.T. Wright says, humans will do what their creator does, and we will take our rest together with him. The world was to be a place where God and humans existed in perfect harmony. So day seven would have been forever with God. Fruitfulness, dominion, and relationship. And we get a picture of what this would have looked like in the rest of chapter two. What does chapter 2 teach us about the relationship between humans and God? This is where I can't really dig in too much, but I'll tell you this. God provides for every single one of their needs. You keep reading through. He creates the man out of the dust of the ground. He breathes nostrils, uh, breath into his, the nostrils, he, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He causes out of the ground to spring up every tree, verse 9, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is there, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You've got gold in this land. Later on, for the man, God provides a spouse. Of all the things, he's saying it's good, it's good, it's good. The one thing that he says is not good is what? Man is alone, and he provides the very thing that wasn't good. And he provides that. So you see God and man working in perfect harmony there. What about man and woman? God provides the woman. And then it says in verse 23, the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had complete intimacy without fear or guilt. And then you see humans exercising authority and dominion over creation. They're naming the animals, and there is perfect harmony and fruitfulness. This is a picture of day seven. I've got a summary statement for you from Vaughn Roberts. He says this, it is an idyllic picture of the good life, life as it was meant to be. God's people, Adam and Eve, live in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule, and as a result, they enjoy God's blessing. If you're here today and you've never heard the gospel or you've thought of the Bible as a bunch of laws or commands or stories, this is what it's about. You were made to know God, to enjoy God, to live with him. And and the, the brokenness we see in the world is not God's design. The junk we see in this world would not have been on day seven. That's not God's fault. But the fall. I need to move on. This is where we move into act two. The fall, rebellion in the kingdom in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells us the sad story of rebellion in God's kingdom and of the devastating consequences 
on his perfect creation. And there's four truths in Act 2 that we're going to look at and then wrap up. The first one is this. The serpent is Satan, the great deceiver. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. If we were to peek forward in the New Testament in Revelation 12, 9 or 20, verse 2, it identifies this serpent as Satan. But the scriptures never tell us where he came from. Von Roberts highlights, the writer does not set out to answer all of our questions. He simply tells us what we need to know. Now, I'm not saying it's a valid question for us to wrestle with where the serpent came from, but for my purposes today, what we need to know is that he's a part of the story. Since Satan is a created being, and we can resolve that because we know that only God alone is eternal as we read the rest of the scriptures, he must have been part of the original perfect creation and then rebelled against God at some point. What does it tell us that Satan does? First of all, we see Satan doesn't submit to God's rule, and he doesn't want you living underneath God's reign. Look at, and we'll continue in verse 1. It says, and he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? No, he said you, you can only eat, not eat, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is Satan doing here? What he's after is he wants you to question the very character and goodness of God. He makes God's command sound harsher than it really is. Hey, did God really say you can't eat of anything? Any tree? No, that's not what God said. But what's he doing? He, he's, he's turning God and making God the bad guy. Second, and actually Eve responds. Look at what she says, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Second thing, he flat out calls God a liar. So Satan has now taken the place of God. God, God doesn't know what he's talking about. He says you're going to die. No, don't believe him. He's a liar. Third thing Satan does. We see it in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan presents God as a cosmic killjoy. In other words, hey, God knows that you'll be like him and he doesn't... He's afraid of that. He doesn't want that. So he's keeping you from something that would be really good for you. And let me just hit pause here. Every time we're tempted to sin, a lot of these same things are happening with us. Your flesh, the world, Satan, want you to question the character of God. He's not telling the truth. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know better than God. Let me ask you this. What's so terrible with eating the fruit? Why? 
Why does he say you can't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Here's my answer to that. What God was after was not necessarily them knowing good and evil. but deciding good and evil. You see, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was for them to replace God and become their own God. Now they can determine for themselves what is good and evil. And to be honest with you, this is at the nature of all sin. We don't want God telling us what to do. We want to be our own God. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same thing from the beginning. And this is why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Because at the heart of the gospel is this. Are you going to continue to be king of your life? Are you going to die to yourself and fall on your knees and submit to the reign of God over your life? And here's the deal, if you want to be your own king, you're free to do that. But you're going to see the very same consequences that they faced is the trajectory where you're headed. The only way back to day seven is to submit to the kingship of Christ. So what do Adam and Eve do? The second truth, Adam and Eve rebel and reject God as king. Look here at the text, verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good. Oh, hold up. Let's hit pause. Did anybody hear an echo? The woman saw that the tree was good. Who sees and determines what's good? God does. That's the pattern of the, of the king of creation who creates and sees that it's good. Now we have Eve here who said, all right. I'm going to step into the place of God, and I'm going to see and determine what is good. She saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. I'll just hit pause here. The pathway to wisdom is not by becoming your own God. The pathway to wisdom is recognizing who you are and who you are not and who God is and following his lead and his commands. Adam, where's he? I don't know. The one that was created first and had a, a level of leadership is completely absent and silent. He, he fully knew where and should have stood up, and he said nothing. And so collectively, Adam and Eve both rebel against God's absolute lordship and rule. As a result, they fall into a state of guilty disobedience, leading to catastrophic consequences. And this is why our world is so messed up today. If you're here today, and maybe you just popped in for the first time, and you see all the brokenness in the world, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, I, the reason I'm a Christian is because I believe Christianity provides the best explanation and worldview for me to understand what's going on. And this is the explanation. As a result of their rebellion, we're going to see truth number three. God responds in judgment, and we see the effects of that all across the world. 
Look, the consequences of this disastrous rebellion now picture the rest. And like that rest and those perfect relationships are marred. Let's, let's go right through them. Man and woman. You know how, what their relationship looks like now? Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were naked. They were open and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Instead of Genesis 2, where there's like perfect, like complete intimacy and no guilt or shame, now they sense their nakedness. They hide. Second, when God comes and addresses them, verse 8, they heard the sin of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, what'd they do? They hid themselves. You were created to live with God in his garden sanctuary temple with his presence. They're fleeing. They heard the sound of the Lord God walk in the garden. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What's going on? They're both blame shifting. And you know what? We all do this just the same. We don't want to own up for our own sin. We want to blame somebody else. This is rampant in the world we live in. Nobody, it's, no, it's never our fault. It's always something else outside of me. Instead, like, to, to respond to the gospel is to take your finger and point it back at yourself. And I do this as well and say, the problem isn't outside of me. The problem is me. What did Adam do? He said, you're the problem, God. You gave me this woman. The woman says, it was the serpent. They're all pointing fingers. And then when God passes judgment in verses 14 through 19, they don't receive the blessing of God of chapter 1 and 2. They receive curse. And here's what we see here. Look at the relationship. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We see God passes judgment on the woman, frustrating all of her relationships in the home. Her joy in being fruitful and multiplying is marred while her intimate relationship with her husband is turned to conflict. Bruce Walkie says this, to love and to cherish is replaced by to domineer and to subjugate. So that perfect harmony in Genesis 2 on day seven, has now been radically distorted. And so there's no surprise that there's marred relationships in this world today between husband and wife and between other humans. What about humans in creation? We just saw here, Adam's work now, man's work is a laborious toil because of thorns and thistles. 
Additionally, if I had time, I'd go to Romans 8. And Romans 8 talks about how the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth until now longing for redemption. Not just Adam and Eve, but all of creation. Like the physical creation. And here's the point you need to hear today. God is not just concerned with the spiritual. He's also concerned with the physical. Which means his salvation and his redemption will be holistic. He's not just going to redeem your souls. He will redeem your bodies and this entire earth. That's new creation. But I can't go there right now. What about humans and God? They're hiding from God. They're fleeing his presence. They are afraid and ashamed. And then finally, look at verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They are kicked out of the garden. God carries out his warning that they would die. Von Roberts highlights in saying, they continue to exist physically, but spiritually they are dead, cut off from God's presence, and it is only a matter of time before their physical existence ends also. Because if we were to continue reading, we would get to Genesis 5. And you know what Genesis 5 is going to go through and it's going to unpack. These are all the generations and they died. So here's a summary statement from Act 2. God's people have been banished from God's place and God's presence because they rejected his rule and as a result faces curse. If you want to continue to be your own king, you will face the same curse. But I've got good news for you as we wrap up. There's a fourth truth that we see here in Genesis 3. God also shows mercy and grace. You realize Genesis 3 could have been the end of the story. God would have been completely just to leave it there. But what's remarkable about the fall is that even in spite of such tragedy, there's a picture of hope. Sin is met by judgment, but God also shows great mercy and grace. Let me show you this. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Does that not strike you as odd? Like, you've just rejected God as king. He has just laid his curses on you. I think I'll call my wife's name the mother of all the living. It's a glimmer of hope that death isn't the end of the story. Second, look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
while this may not seem significant to you, let me just ask you this. What had to happen for God to make garments of skin and clothe them? Presumably, it came from an animal, implicitly suggesting that the shedding of blood and sacrifice was necessary to cover their sin, a sacrifice which he one day would supply through his own son. But then lastly, look at verse 15. When God is cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the proto-euangelion, the first glimpses of the gospel in the Bible. And you may be like, what's going on here? Well, here's what, you've got this offspring of the woman, which I'll come back next week and unpack, and you have Satan, the serpent. And he's saying there's going to be some offspring from the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. This is foreshadowing the death and resurrection and return of Christ. And what's alluded here is that this triumph over the serpent would reverse the effects of the fall and result in a return to the Garden of Eden, an Edenic state where the people of God would be restored to the presence of God underneath the kingdom of God in the good land of God. As our band, I want to invite our band up, and I want to wrap up as the band comes on up here. Don't clock out on me. Every single one of us, including myself, faced the predicament, the same predicament as Adam and Eve. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. At some point in our life, we've rejected God as our king. And as a result, we all face spiritual and physical death. And we will face the punishment and separation from God that we see here in Genesis 3. But just as God was merciful and gracious with Adam and Eve, he extends that same mercy and grace to us. Here's the good news of the story. God's plan is to redeem the whole world so that we can get back to day seven in the garden and enjoy his presence and rest forever. When Jesus steps on the stage in Act 4, he says, Everyone who is heavy laden and overburdened, come to me and you will find rest. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath. Day 7 And the Sabbath command was to remind you that you were made for God's rest 
And Jesus comes and he says, I'm here to fulfill the Sabbath. Rest is found in me. When you place faith in Jesus, when you trust him, you have the hope that your future is not Genesis 3. Your future is day 7 and the rest of God. I've moved to Boston nine years ago because this is the news that this city needs to hear. That the pathway to rest and enjoyment and peace is found in Jesus. And so if you haven't responded and crushed your kingdom and submitted to God's kingdom and embraced Jesus, I invite you to do that today. You do that simply by confessing your sin, confessing that you've been king, laying that down, asking for forgiveness, and saying, God, I want you to come and be my king, and trusting and believing that the death and resurrection of Jesus, he is going to pay your penalty, so you don't have to face judgment. You can come to Jesus today. And this is the message of the gospel that we want to extend to our city. It's a message that I believe relates because they see a world where there is no rest. And we have the message and hope of the gospel where there is and will be rest. I'll leave you with this famous quote from Augustine who said, God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. I invite you to enter into and enjoy the rest of God. Father, we thank you for your word. God, as we reflect on this story, God, we're reminded that we often reject you as king to be our own king. So God, maybe for some of us today, it's a fresh acknowledgement of where we're not putting our lives on the table, where we're not taking up our cross and dying to self and following you, that, that you would be king, that you would be Lord, that your sphere and reign would be increasingly evident. God, we pray your kingdom come. We want to seek first the kingdom of God. God, we want to be people that find rest in Christ. God, help us to walk in the rest that you provide. And God, we pray that this would be a message, a message of hope to our city. God, help us to share this. Help us to live this. God, we long for your return. Come, Lord Jesus. We long to live on day seven rest with you in the new creation forever. God, thank you for that promise. We walk in that today in Christ's name. Amen.